Well, good morning, everyone. Uh, it's a blessing and a privilege to be here this morning, bringing the word to you. And I have to say, this is only by the divine providence of God, because uh, you have to understand, a few weeks ago, uh, Roman approached Andrew and I and asked that we would take some turns teaching Sunday school. And so I was already preparing to teach Sunday school for this Sunday and the next Sunday. And as God would have it, uh, Roman was out sick, Gary's out sick, Andrew's out sick. But I was already preparing to teach the word. So um, it's just God, how God works sometimes, right? Uh, so Roman, I talked to him yesterday, and he sounded a lot better than when he initially called me on Friday. Uh, so, as Dean said, he is on the mend, but you can keep, continue to keep their family in your prayers as well as uh, all those others in our church who are, who are sick at this time. So, as you know, we had been going through, oh, and by the way, Roman, he, he sends his love to everyone. He's, if you know him, he, you know how much he misses being here and, and seeing everyone and having fellowship with, with you every Sunday. So, just wanted to relay that to you. Anyways, as you know, we've been going through the London Baptist Confession of Faith uh, during our Sunday school hour, and if you're not familiar uh, with that document, um, it was produced in the late 17th century um, by the Baptists, and the Baptists, up until that time, had been a, a persecuted uh, minority within Protestantism, and there was a lot of variety of theology that was coming about, and there was no structure to, uh, to the Baptist denomination, if you will, and they came together to write a document that spells out what they believe, and the confession is essentially a short, systematic theology, so it just goes subject to subject, and here's what we believe about the Bible, here's what we believe about God, and uh, boom, 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 and it's all, it's all short and sweet, but written in a way that is, is uh, it just has all the meat right there without any extra fluff. So up until this point, we've gone through all the basics, of the fundamentals of the faith and the basics of salvation. So we've covered who is God, who is man, who is Jesus Christ, what did Christ accomplish on the cross, so that is that goes behind the scenes of what is election, what is regeneration, what is justification, what is the atonement, what is adoption. And so we studied many of these, these subjects and still have more to come, but this week we were going to study what is sanctification. And at this point we've arrived at, at the what now, a question of, of our faith. And understanding the answer to this question is, it's a huge problem in Christianity today, and as we see in scripture, this was a big problem in the early church as well. So think with me for a second here. If you've been saved, you've been rescued from your sin, if you've been justified, so in, in, God's, in God's eyes, you're, you have perfect moral standing, if your sin has been atoned for, if you have been adopted into God's family, if you have received a guarantee of all the blessings of God in Christ, then what now? What do you do with your life at this point? Because we're kind of in this interesting middle ground where all of our salvation has been accomplished but in a way, not yet. We haven't yet been taken up into glory. We haven't yet received our resurrection bodies. And while we're spiritually freed from the reign and dominion of sin, we still have these fleshly bodies that are corrupted by sin, and we're still prone to fall into sin. So we have all the guarantees and benefits of salvation promised to us, but we're still in these mortal bodies living in this current life. So what do we do with our lives? And that's an important question, right? It's the question of what is the purpose of my life? 
And there are two common responses to this today, which I'm sure you are aware of, uh, which miss the mark. And one of those questions, or one of those responses, I should say, is, well, I guess I can do whatever I want now because I'm forgiven of my sin. Like, I, I don't have to worry about any punishment for my sin. I don't have to worry about any condemnation. So I can go and I can live however I want. And that's what you might call, in the theological terms, uh, antinomianism. Now, on the other hand, there's another view, and this view has goes something like, uh, I need to pay God back for what he's done for me. Christ accomplished all of this on the cross. I am so indebted to God. I need to do something to pay him back. And this view also misses the mark. It is the view that God starts the work of salvation, but it's up to me to finish it, really. And this, this is sort of a legalistic uh, way of thinking. I wonder if you have ever thought this way before. I wonder if you have ever fallen into one of these two ways of thinking. Uh, I know I have. Uh, when I grew up in the church before I was saved, I definitely thought in the first way. I thought, well, if I just pray this prayer, boom, everything's done. My sins are covered. I can just go on my merry way. That's all I got to do, pray the, pray the prayer and be done with it. Just keep on chugging along. And that wasn't very satisfying. It didn't feel like any, like something's wrong here, right? I just, something doesn't make sense. I just pray this prayer and my sins are covered, but I just keep on doing what I have been doing. It doesn't make any sense. But then after I was convicted of my sin by the Lord and I, I was saved and I was regenerated and I had a new spirit within me, I, I was feeling indebted to God. I thought, wow, what a salvation. And then I thought, I need to pay God back. He's done so much for me. There's this huge debt of sin. I need to pay God back. And unfortunately, I began to rely on myself in my own efforts for my sanctification. It was all me. It was all how hard can I work to fix myself. Neither of these ways of thinking are how the word of God describes how Christians ought to live in response to the gospel. And in our study this morning, um, we're going to look at what the Apostle Paul says in his letter to the Ephesians about this important topic. Uh, before we do, let's open in prayer. Father God, we are so thankful to have your word. We're so thankful for the clarity of your word and how abundant it is in helping us navigate every area of life. Lord, as we study it this morning, we ask that you would open the eyes of our hearts, that you would teach us how we ought to live, that we would, you would show us our purpose in this life, which is to bring you honor and glory, not to go on sinning, but to live for the purpose for which you freed us from sin, that is to honor you. Help us to know your will in every area of our lives. Lord, I pray that you would grant us conviction by your Holy Spirit. Continue to transform and renew our minds. Help us, Lord, to see the beauty and excellencies of Christ, to worship him for all that he's done, for all that he continues to do, for all that he is, Lord. Father God, I pray that you would help us to worship you in spirit and in truth this morning. And I pray for myself that you would just give me clarity. Help me to preach your word accurately, not to be focused on how I might sound, but simply to convey the truth that is in your word. Father, I'm confident that where your word is faithfully preached, it doesn't return void but that it's your Holy Spirit who is truly working through it in the hearts of the people. And in that regard, I'm simply a messenger. Lord, I pray that people would see less of me, more of Christ. 
And Lord, I pray for Roman and Nancy and all those who are sick this morning. You would continue to watch over them, continue to heal them of their disease. Be near to them and encourage them uh, this morning. And we ask all this in the name of Christ. Amen. <coughs> so with that regard, we'll start off answering the question, what is sanctification? What is sanctification? That's the word that we were going to study in our, <coughs> in our Sunday school this morning. And I'm not exactly preaching exactly what I was going to speak about in Sunday school. That was more of a classroom study, study a whole comprehensive overview. We're going to focus in on one passage this morning. But what is sanctification? Sanctification literally means to be made holy. So you take something that's not holy and you set it apart. You purify it. You make it holy. Connotation is to be purified. And scripture throughout the New Testament especially, uh, describes sanctification in a lot of different ways. It doesn't always say, this is what sanctification is, blah, 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 blah. It's, it's always coming at it from a different angle. And we don't have time to cover all these different angles today. But sanctification is the essence of what is done in the Christian life as you grow into the image of Christ. When we are saved, we are in Christ, and God is working through his Holy Spirit to purify us so that we would become more like Christ. This sanctification occurs in two ways. In the first way, it's a purification that is made complete through the work of Christ immediately. It's immediately applied to you when you become a believer. As soon as we are in Christ through faith, God sees us as sanctified. Uh, 1 Corinthians 6.11 says, and that is what some of you were in reference to, to sinful habits. But you were washed, you were sanctified, you were justified in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ and by the Spirit of our God. That's past tense, sanctified. It's done. And yet there is another manner in which Scripture describes sanctification. And this is probably what we're more familiar with. This is progressive sanctification. The longer we walk in our Christian lives, the more we are molded into the image of Christ. And Dean had an excellent analogy this morning of how Michelangelo would be working on a sculpture and just chipping, 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 chipping away. More and more slowly you see the form taking place until it's this beautiful piece of, piece of artwork. And that is what this process of sanctification looks like in the Christian life. The more and more that we follow and obey Christ, the less we sin and the more we do what is right and what is pleasing to God. And not only is this a pattern of outward actions, this is actually something that's going on inside of us, inside of our spirit. Internally, Sin and temptation have less and less grip on us. They're always there. They're always going to pull us down. But more and more, we are submissive to the rule of Christ and less submissive to the rule of sin. The more we are trained in righteousness, the less power sin has in our lives. So this morning, we're going to look at Ephesians 4, verses 17 through 24. And... Of course, you could go all over the New Testament, and we could talk about all the aspects of sanctification, but um, we're just going to limit ourselves this morning uh, to this one passage. To present a little bit of background, Ephesians was uh, an epistle written to the church in Ephesus. This is in a Greek area, and the church was primarily composed of Greek believers, whereas a lot of the epistles are written to Jewish believers and you have a lot of Jewish context about who is the Christ in that sense. But this was written to Greeks who had come out of the pagan religions of the Greek world. And as such, uh, the warnings in this letter are against temptations that Greeks would face and Greek philosophy as opposed to the temptations that Jewish believers would face. It is more or less a 
a straightforward epistle of encouragement and admonition uh, with reminders for these believers of all the blessings that they have in Christ. And it's an exhortation to not become complacent with these blessings, not to be complacent in their Christian life, but to take advantage of the power and the gifts of the Holy Spirit that are theirs in Christ to fight sin and to honor God. So we find ourselves in the latter part of the book where Paul is about to switch from explaining theology to practical matters. And he has just finished up this, this wonderful passage about how Christ is building his church through the Holy Spirit. And he has this metaphor of how the church is a body. The church is a body composed of many different parts. And when all these parts are working in harmony, then it grows up into maturity. And the way this occurs is through the blessings and the gifts of the Holy Spirit through apostles and teachers and prophets and evangelists to then use to teach the people about who Christ is and how to honor him. And then at this point where we're at in chapter 4, uh, Paul makes a, a shift in his language, though. He's, he's no longer speaking in the third person, describing the church, describing how Christ works in the church. He turns it on to them. He says, now you. And he, you can see this transition in his voice. So let's go ahead and read this passage. Ephesians 4, verses 17 through 24. Now this I say, and testify in the Lord, that you must no longer walk as the Gentiles do, in the futility of their minds. They are darkened in their understanding, alienated from the life of God because of the ignorance that is in them due to their hardness of heart. They have become callous and have given themselves up to sensuality, greedy to practice every kind of impurity. But this is not the way you learned Christ. Assuming that you have heard about him and were taught in him, as the truth is in Jesus, to put off your old self, which belongs to your former manner of life and is corrupt through deceitful desires, and to be renewed in the spirit of your minds and to put on the new self, created after the likeness of God in true righteousness and holiness. If you're taking notes on our sermon today, uh, we're going to split this passage up into two parts. The first part, we're going to look at our old selves, what characterized us before we were saved, and then we're going to look at our new selves, and that is how we are being sanctified into the image of Christ. Now, we're going to dive pretty deep into some of the language here. Uh, there's some interesting grammar that Paul uses in the middle of this passage. Uh, he describes this sanctification process as salvation and sanctification pro process as learning Christ which is a strange way to phrase it. Uh, and finally, we're going to study how that sanctification breaks down into three parts. And the, the first part is going to be the putting off of the old self. The second part is the spiritual renewal going place inside of you. And the third part is the putting on of the new self. So with that overview and outline in your mind, uh, keep that in your mind because we can get down into the weeds here and might get a little confusing, uh, but let's dive in. So to begin, Paul exhorts them, you must no longer walk as the Gentiles do. Paul then describes their former state of life. He describes their old selves. Paul uses this imagery of how one walks. He says, you must no longer walk as the Gentiles do. Now, of course, he's speaking to Gentiles, Gentile believers, so when he says Gentiles, what he means is your natural Gentile self, the, the Gentiles who are still following the pagan gods. But he uses this imagery of walking. This is referring to the regular pattern of someone, how someone goes about their daily business in life. 
This is just what you do. Every single day, all of us walk around, right? You don't even think about it. You go to the store, you go to the restroom, you go to eat, you get up and you walk over there. I used to uh, work in an office where I was right near a walkway and very, very big bustling office and it was very, very distracting to be right next to the walkway. But I could identify hundreds of people from 30 feet away without looking at them simply by the way they walked because everyone had a unique gait and it was very much the habit of their life. They didn't even think about it. They didn't even think it was unique. They're just going from point A to point B. But this walking is something that all of us do unconsciously. No one is thinking, okay, left foot, right foot, quadricep, uh, whatever all those muscles are. <laughs> You're not thinking through that at all. It's just your day-to-day -day habit of how you live. And uh, this, is, this is what Paul is, Paul is saying to them, that your old manner of life, everything you did unconsciously, this has got to change. Christ is going to reform your whole pattern of life. So let's dive in. What is this old pattern of life? What characterized their walk? Well, first he says, no longer walk as the Gentiles do in the futility of their mind. They are darkened in their understanding. So this is talking about their mind. This is talking about their spiritual knowledge. It was futile. They had no purpose in life. Everything in their life was meaningless. Everything was vanity. They were simply pursuing what was directly in front of them. They were pursuing imminent pleasure. They were pursuing the things of this world. Their mind was just set on what was right in front of them. They had no deeper understanding of the meaning of life. They had no knowledge of God. They had no idea what was out there. They had no knowledge of spiritual things. And without any knowledge of God whatsoever, simply thinking about what was right in front of them, they were ignorant. They were oblivious to the true meaning of anything in life. And more than that, they were completely oblivious, no awareness at all of right and wrong and how they got to live, how they ought to live, how they ought to obey God completely and totally ignorant. Scripture says that they are darkened in understanding. This could mean that they were spiritually blind, but I think the, the metaphor Paul is more or less using here is to have your judgment clouded by sin. This is the idea of walking in the light versus walking in the darkness. Uh, this darkness uh, in Scripture is referring to the domain of evil and sin. Their, their minds were clouded by sin. Criminals and thieves went about at darkness to do their deeds, right? That's when criminals go out to commit sin. Why? Because it's hard to be seen, it's hard to be caught. So scripture repeatedly uses this metaphor of darkness to refer to the domain of sin and evil. On the contrary, believers who are unashamed, who have no guilt, are described as those who walk in the light, right? Children of the light. So these Gentiles, they were darkened in understanding. Their minds were clouded by sin. They could not think straight because sin infected them and controlled even their very most basic thoughts. Furthermore, Paul describes that they were alienated from the life of God because of their ignorance and because of their hardness of heart. This is talking about spiritual life. First, we were talking about knowledge, spiritual knowledge. Now we're talking about spiritual life. The unbeliever does not have any spiritual life. If you just flip back to Ephesians 2, Paul, you'll notice in Ephesians, Paul is hitting these same themes over and over and over. In Ephesians 2, Paul writes, 
And you were dead in the trespasses and sins in which you once walked. There we have walking. Following the course of this world, following the prince of the power of the air, the spirit that is now at work in the sons of disobedience, among whom we all once lived in the passions of our flesh, carrying out the desires of the body and the mind, and were by nature children of wrath like the rest of mankind. But God, being rich in mercy because of the great love with which he loved us, even when we were dead in our trespasses, made us alive together with Christ. Paul rephrases it here. Before we were in Christ, we were spiritually dead. We were dead. There was no spiritual life within us. Because of sin, as unbelievers, we were completely separated from God. Because God is holy and God cannot exist with sin. Moreover, not only did sin establish a separation from God, but Paul writes that sin prevented unbelievers from finding God. Sin creates a hardness of heart and a callousness that only leads to more sin. This is the natural state of un any unbeliever. Now this passage explains something that's very telling about human nature. And very telling about how we come to Christ and how exactly we're sanctified. Many unbelievers, I'm sure you've met them, think that they are spiritually neutral. Do you know what I'm referring to? They think that they are sort of an unbiased opinion. They're not biased by this religion or that religion. They can sit there and objectively evaluate all religions for themselves. They think they can discern every religion for its merits and its weaknesses. But this passage explains that this is simply not the case for two different reasons. First, the unbeliever is spiritually dead. And if there's one thing about being dead, that is for sure, is you stay dead. You can't make yourself alive because you're dead, right? <laughs> you can't do anything if you're dead. You're just dead. So how can a person who is spiritually dead bring themselves back to life? It's not possible. Secondly, every unbeliever, whether they're religious or not, as this passage explains, is actually already following another god. Paul writes that they are committed to following the course of this world, the prince of the power of the air. And that is to say, they're simply going with the flow in this world. They're just going with the flow. Whatever spiritual air is out there, they're just sort of in that mix. Whatever desires and impulses they have, they act on them. And this isn't an old idea. I'm sure you have heard all of this today. It's always repackaged into something new. Nowadays, we're told to be true to ourselves, right? Be true to yourself. Look inside, find those feelings, find a way to exhibit those. We're told that every natural desire within us is good. And we only do bad things if we have been suppressed by someone else, which has then changed our inner psyche, right? That's what we're told. Child psychologists will teach that you should never say no to a child. You should not try to form their character. You should just let them express themselves in whatever the way they see fit. Secular world tells us that a religion is just a suppression of the goodness of humanity. It's just a constraint. Have you, have you heard these ideas out there? That is the spirit of the age. And of course, we know who is, who is influencing the ideas in this world, right? We know that Satan is behind all this. 
Satan tempts with sin. He leads us astray. He forms these ideas. But this is the spirit of the age that these Greek believers had followed before they came to know Christ. Finally, Paul doesn't let up. He says, by nature, they were children of wrath. What does it mean? This is to say that all who are separated from Christ, anyone who does not have new life in Christ, is beholden, or you might even say enslaved, to the destructive desires of their sin. If you don't have new life within you, if you don't have a new spirit given to you, if you have not been raised by Christ, you are spiritually dead. And if you are spiritually dead, you have no holy desires. You only have fleshly desires. And if you only have fleshly desires, that's all you have to follow, right? And if that's all you have to follow, it's those desires that are going to control you. 2 Corinthians 4.4, also written by Paul, explains this in another way. Paul writes, And even if our gospel was veiled, it is veiled to those who are perishing. In their case, the God of this world has blinded the minds of the unbelievers to keep them from seeing the light of the gospel of the glory of Christ, who is the image of God. For what we proclaim is not ourselves, but Jesus Christ is Lord, with ourselves as your servants for Jesus' sake. For God, who said, let light shine out of darkness, has shown in our hearts to give the light of the knowledge of the glory of God in the face of Jesus Christ. That is the picture of how God has regenerated the believer. He has shined your light into your heart. Think of a cloudy day that's just completely dark and miserable, and then you see the light piercing through the, the clouds. That's what God did in your heart when he regenerated you. But for those who are not saved, they're walking in blindness. They're walking in darkness. Unbelievers are blinded by the darkness, by the God of this world. They are unable to see, unable to spiritually discern the gospel. And this results, as Paul explains, in ignorance, in hardness of heart, in callousness to God, in enslavement to sin, sensuality, greed, self-centeredness, the list goes on. And this is the pattern of life of the unbeliever. This is the walk of the unbeliever. This is just the subconscious framework for how they think and do everything. And that was every single one of us before God shone in our hearts, right? I'm sure many of you remember the days when that was, when that was the case in your life. In summary, this is what we were before we were saved. We were completely blind. We were completely ignorant. We were completely dead, completely clouded by sin in our minds, completely devoted to carnal, sinful desires of the flesh. We were just driven by that inward self-centeredness, whatever makes us feel good. And that is all we knew. We were completely separated from God and all that is good, for all that is good comes from God. And this is what Paul is writing to these believers in Ephesus saying, you're a believer now. This was your former walk. This is what you can no longer walk this way. And that leads into our second section about our new selves and our sanctification. Now this description of our old selves paints a pretty bleak picture, right? But that is necessary for us to understand our sanctification. 
And Paul reminds them of their old selves to point out, this is not how you learned Christ. You did not come to Christ through this way of thinking. You were dead. And when he uses the word, but, he's marking a transition. He says, but, that is not how you learned Christ. And so when we see the word but, or we see the word because, we see a transition occurring, and we see that Paul is starting a contrast. For any who have learned Christ, then living according to the flesh, following that old pattern of life, is contradictory. Now we're about to engage in some of these interesting grammatical phrases that that I mentioned before. Paul says, that is not the way you learned Christ. Assuming that you have heard about him and were taught in him as the truth is in Jesus. I don't know if you think the same way I do, but learned Christ, kind of a strange phrase. You were taught in him, kind of a strange phrase. We don't use that every day. As the truth is in Jesus, kind of strange, right? Would you guys agree? Kind of interesting phrases. So the way Paul is writing this, when he starts out and saying, this is not the way you learned Christ, this is kind of the, the summary statement, this is the emphatic statement he's saying, there's two ways that this one, this phrase can be taken. The first way is that he's trying to tell these believers, you did not become a Christian through your Gentile thinking. And the second way this may be understood is all your old Gentile patterns of life are not consistent with your new life in Christ. In, in either way, it means in the end relatively the same thing. So let's dive into this phrase. What is, what is Paul talking about? He says he learned Christ. No one goes around saying, I learned Christ today. If you get in your car and you're going home and you're like, what did you learn in the sermon today? Well, I learned Christ. Right? Kind of strange. You watch a sermon on the internet. What did you get from that? I learned Christ. It's like, it's not type of grammar we would use. We might say, I learned about Christ. But what does it mean that we learned him? Paul helps us out a little bit. He goes on and makes a rhetorical statement. Assuming you have heard about him and were taught in him. So it helps us out a little bit. It breaks it down into two pieces, assuming that you have learned about him. Okay, that's easy enough, right? Been taught the things about Christ. But then he has another interesting grammatical phrase, and we're taught in him. You might say that you were taught about Christ. You might say you were taught by Christ. What does it mean to be taught in him? Paul breaks it down even further and says, as the truth is in Jesus, to put off your old self, which belongs to your former manner of life and is corrupt through deceitful desires, and to be renewed in the spirit of your minds and to put on the new self created after the likeness of God in true righteousness and holiness. So those three things, putting off your old self, renewal by the spirit in your minds, and putting on the new self, those three things are a breakdown of the truth that is in Jesus. Okay, but still it doesn't fully answer the question, why is he, he using this language? What, what is he getting at here? What does it mean that the truth is in, as this truth is in Jesus? What Paul is getting at here is that there is a type of teaching and learning that goes beyond information. This is not simply a book exercise or a brain exercise where you learn some facts 
and you got it in your head. And neither is this a, a logical argumentation. Learn facts, and then that means I must do this. Although both of those are components here. What he's talking about is training. And this training is a result of the union that we have with Christ. Now, the best example I could think, in which we might use this type of language today, is if you were to learn an art form, or perhaps like martial arts or something. You wouldn't say, I learned about karate. You'd say, I learned karate, right? What is the implication there? It's not that you, you learn some facts, it's that you learned how to do it. But there's something more to it than that. What Paul is getting at is that learning Christ is not just learning about him. It is knowing him in a direct and personal way and being trained in his very nature. In this sense, Jesus is the school. Jesus is the art form. Jesus is the method of living itself. And then when it comes to you are taught in him as the truth is in Jesus. Here we have another quite kind of philosophical statement. It might be hard to understand, but remember John 14, 6. What did Jesus say? Jesus said, I am the way, I am the truth, I am the life. What does that mean? I am the truth. He didn't say, I am the holder of truth. He didn't say, I know about truth. He didn't say, I determine what truth is. He said, I am the truth. What he's saying is, I am the perfect embodiment of moral truth in every way, absolutely. Paul, in a lot of other places, he uses this kind of language. What, is, what, is Paul, what did Paul say in Philippians? For to me, to live is Christ, right? To live is Christ. And so now he says, this is not the way you learned Christ. Assuming you have heard about him and were taught in him as the truth is in Jesus. When we learn Christ, we are not just learning facts about Christ. We're not just developing some logical implications about how we live. This has to do this is absolutely crucial for understanding your sanctification, not being a work of your own, but being a work of Christ in which you participate. This is an awakening to our new identity in Christ. This is who we are. This is a type of learning and training in which Jesus is the subject, he is the teacher, he is the school, and he is the method. He is everything. And knowing who we are now in him reestablishes the nature of who we are. And this results in a new life altogether. A new life altogether, not just a life purpose. This is a new life altogether, a new life in Christ. It is to be like him and to embody him in every single way. When someone is saved, they come to a knowledge of Christ, a not just a head knowledge, but a personal knowledge. They come to faith in him. And this is more than believing a set of facts. This is faith in Jesus Christ as a person by which you are united to him. When he says he is God, you worship him. When he says he is good, you trust him. When he says he knows all things, you follow him. When he says he knows what is best for your life, you obey him. When he says his yoke is easy and his burden is light, you cast your cares and your anxieties upon him. This is what it means to have faith in Christ. This is what it means to learn Christ. What is sanctification then? Sanctification is the process by which that becomes 
more and more and more and more complete in our lives. Sanctification is a process by which our faith becomes stronger and stronger and stronger and stronger in our life. The more we know Christ, the more we trust Christ, the more we live as Christ. That is what it means to learn Christ. Then Paul breaks it down for us. That was the philosophical, that was the theological, this is the practical. What do you do? What do you do? Where do you go from here? The first part of this breakdown, which is the truth in Jesus, is that we put off our old selves. What did we talk about earlier? Talk about no longer walking as we once walked. Paul has another piece of imagery for us. He says that we put off our old selves, and later we'll look at putting on the new selves. And this imagery, which he also uses in Colossians 3, is the imagery of clothing. You show up, you've been outside, you've been working in the yard, working on the farm, you've got dirty clothes. What do you do? Shed those old clothes, put on new clothes, right? So he's using this imagery of clothing as this is how you you shed your old selves. You take off your old clothes. <clears throat> Knowing Christ and uh, belonging to him involves a, a complete renewal, a complete overhaul, a complete renovation of who you are. You can no longer walk how you used to walk. You must take off your old clothing, who you once were, and become a new person. Nothing of yourself is out of bounds of the sanctification of God. Now, someone might ask, why do we have to get rid of the old self completely? Well, it belongs to your former manner of life. This is not who you are any longer. That's what Paul is trying to communicate to the saints who are at Ephesus. They are now in Christ. This is their new identity. They are no longer in Adam. They are no longer in the flesh. They have a new identity in Christ. Part of sanctification is recognizing that their identity has changed. You are fundamentally at your core no longer a sinner, but you are a saint. You sin, but you are no longer under the reign and dominion of sin. You are under the reign of Christ, the dominion of righteousness. Second Corinthians 5.17 says it this way, Therefore, if anyone is in Christ, he is a new creation. New creation. That means altogether new. The old has gone, the new has come. Secondly, the old self is corrupt. This is what sin does. Paul writes, it is corrupted through deceitful desires. This is to say that those fleshly desires involved with your old manner of life, your old habits, they're deceitful. They will always be trying to pull you back into sinful lifestyles if you allow them to gain a foothold in your lives. You must be ready to abandon all those old parts of your lifestyle. Now the next part, sanctification, we've talked about this, this truth in Jesus to put off your old self. The second practical part is the renewing of your minds. Paul writes, and to be renewed in the spirit of your minds. Now, I was doing some study on this. The ESV puts in this modifier, in. It's not in the Greek language, and Greek language works differently. Some translators think they should put the word in here, and others say it should probably should be translated as by. And to be renewed by the spirit of your minds which is to say that the Holy Spirit has now come inside of you and is renewing you. Either way, 
uh, doesn't make a whole lot of difference. There is a spiritual renewal going on inside of us. This is to say, and this is very important, sanctification, it's not just an outward display of good works. It's not just doing things. And it's not done by brute force. Do you understand what I mean? It's not done by fleshly strength alone. I know if you've ever had a battle of, with sin, you've ever wanted to change a behavior, a mindset, or an attitude, sometimes you just kind of brute force it. You think, ah, oh, I just got to try really hard and just not sin this way. I just need to change my attitude. Brute force. That's not what this is talking about. <clears throat> God has given us a new heart and a new spirit when we're saved, right? And God has given us the knowledge of Christ. And it is the knowledge of Christ. This is going back to why Paul says you learned Christ. It is the knowledge of Christ, how we learned Christ, which completely and utterly reshapes the way we understand everything. There is, this is to say there is a spiritual renewal that is going on inside of you that is going to change your heart's desires. And at this point, <clears throat> I think we're really getting to the crux of sanctification. How is it that a sinner is renewed? We are, after all, though we're alive in Christ, we're still in the flesh. How are we reformed? In Romans, you can spend all day in Romans, and I love it, and it goes deep into how you have the, this, the sin and the spirit side by side fighting to control your desires. But how are we changed? Is this sanctification a work of our own? Is this something you do? Or is this something that God does in you? Think about this for a minute. If you could sanctify yourself, if you could make yourself holy, what is the need for Christ? So in some sense, we know we could never sanctify ourselves. We must have the Spirit of God working in us, right? Now let's take a Let's take a close look at this verse. Paul says to put off your old self, which is an active and a direct command. But then he says, and to be renewed. And this is accurately translated from the Greek. This is a passive tense verb. Be renewed. He doesn't say renew yourself, right? He says be renewed. Yet at the same time, he doesn't say sit around and wait until God renews you and just watch God work his magic. He says be renewed. So there is a sense in which he's commanding them be renewed. This is to say, first and foremost, that the power of spiritual renewal, the power of renewing inside of you, all, changing all of your desires to holy desires, this is the work of God. This power is supplied by God himself. And where does that come from? This is the work of the Holy Spirit done through the knowledge of Christ in your life. Just quickly looking over is 2 Peter 1.3. says, Peter writes, His divine power has granted to us all things that pertain to life and godliness through the knowledge of him who called us to his own glory and excellence. Let me read that again. His divine power, God's divine power, has granted to us all things that pertain to life and godliness. In other words, sanctification, how to be godly, how to live. Through what? Through the knowledge of him. Through the knowledge of him. Peter goes on, by which he has granted to us his precious and very great promises, so that through them you may become partakers of the divine nature, 
having escaped from the corruption that is in the world because of sinful desire. All things, all things that pertain to life and godliness, God has granted to us through the knowledge of Jesus Christ. <clears throat> That's to say, God has granted to us all things we need to be sanctified through knowledge of Christ, through union with him. Makes it pretty clear that the power, the force that is renewing us comes from God by the Holy Spirit, who does what? Who leads us into truth. It's what Christ promised the Holy Spirit would do. Also, <clears throat> it's worth noting the, prom the prayer that Paul makes for the Ephesians in chapter 1. He prays for God to give them the spirit of wisdom, to give them the knowledge of himself, to enlighten the eyes of their hearts. That's a prayer he is making to God for their sanctification. We do not renew ourselves, but rather it is a work of God. And isn't that comforting? For anyone who has struggled with sin, who, who is relying on their own strength, I know I can't overcome all my sin by myself. can't overcome one sin by my own power. It is the renewal of the Holy Spirit within me which empowers me and grants me the desires to do so. The internal renewal, which is at the root of sanctification, is a work of God by the power of the Holy Spirit through the knowledge of Jesus Christ. As our minds are renewed, as our spirits are renewed, as we continually look upon Christ, dwell upon his excellencies, the Holy Spirit works to change our thinking, to give us the mind of Christ. The Holy Spirit works to change our desires, to give us a heart to please the Lord and to be holy. Yet you may still ask, if it's all God's work, then why does Paul reference it as a command, even though a passive command? Be renewed. And ultimately, I think it's best explained this way, is that we can fight against God. Can we not? We can still return to those fleshly desires, return to the old self, and resist the Holy Spirit's work within us. You might think of Jonah. God commanded Jonah to go to Nineveh. He resisted. Now, ultimately, God had his way, didn't he? Through pain, through discipline. And God does say that as a father, he disciplines the one he loves. God will accomplish his work in you. You can resist him, but don't. Resist, be renewed. Allow the Holy Spirit to renew you. Look also at what Paul says in Romans 12. Do not be conformed to this world, but be transformed by the renewal of your mind, that by testing you may discern what is the will of God, what is good and acceptable and perfect. And that is this aspect of sanctification that we have talked about. There is a transformation which occurs that is a work of God that renews our minds, that renews our inner beings, so that we may discern the will of God and do what is right. This brings us to the final piece of sanctification, another active command. We had the active command, put off your old self, we had the passive command, be renewed. Now we have an active command again, put on the new self. And this refers to the working out of the new life that we have in Christ into all the areas, all of the habits, all of the aspects of our lives. We're back to this imagery of putting off the old clothing, putting on the new clothing. And think about it. You can't put on new clothing if you still got on the old clothing, right? Right? And you can't, put on, you can't put off old clothing unless you're going to put on something new. There has, one has to replace the other, and one can't replace the other if the other is still there. Getting rid of old habits, changing the way you walk, requires that you walk in a new way. It doesn't make sense to not walk at all. You're going to have new habits in your life. 
in order to understand the new self, let's quickly compare and contrast with the old self. Paul writes that the old self, and I'm going to be pulling from a lot of different scriptures here. Paul writes that the old self was living in futility of mind, but we know that the new self has the mind of Christ. The old self, we were darkened in our understanding, but our new selves are children of the light, who walk in the light, who are not ashamed of what we do. The old self was alienated from the life of God, but the new self has been made alive in Christ. The old self was ignorant. The old self had no knowledge of God or the things of God. The new self is continually filled with all spiritual wisdom and knowledge. The old self had hardness of heart. The new self is clay in the potter's hand, submissive to the lordship of Christ. The old self was given over to sensuality, and even, Paul writes, greedy to practice every type of impurity. That's saying you're just trying to do as much bad as you can. The new self, as is written in Paul's epistle to Titus, lives self-controlled, upright, and godly lives in the present age. So how do you put on the new self? What Paul is trying to communicate to the Ephesians is that it is now time to work out the effects of their new life in Christ into all the areas of their lives. Just as Paul writes to the Philippians in chapter 2, verses 12 to 13, Therefore, my beloved, as you have always obeyed, so now, not only as in my presence, but much more in my absence, work out your salvation with fear and trembling. For it is God who works in you, both to will and to work for his good pleasure. What's Paul saying there? He's saying, take this new life you have in Christ. That is what your salvation is, right? Being in Christ, having the life of Christ. Take this salvation and work it out. Work it out into every area and habit of your life, into everything that in you do, into all of your thoughts. Let this salvation work itself out in your life. Take your knowledge of Christ. Let it work out into every aspect and habit. Put it into practice. Let it have its full effect in you. And remember, most importantly, it you are not left alone to sanctify yourself. You are not left alone to do works. This is not part two. This is not part one is God, part two is me. This is not God started my salvation, now I have to do good works to finish it. This is not I have to do good works on my own strength to please God. This is God performing a work in you willing and working for his good pleasure. When it comes to your sanctification, the promise that ha this scripture has for you is that God is going to supply your every need. As Dean talked about this morning, there are trials in our lives. But in every trial, God is there, ready to supply our every need. God doesn't sit afar on his throne and demand tasks from you. He doesn't sit on his throne and judge you and judge your performance. God is there. He is with you. Christ is in you. And God is pleased. He is happy to sanctify you. So again, in conclusion, how do you put on the new self? In practical terms, what does it look like? Well, Paul makes it very easy on me in that case because he's already explained it all. Let's go ahead and pick up where we left off in verse 25. 
Paul fleshes it out for us. Therefore, having put away falsehood, let each one of you speak the truth with his neighbor, for we are members of one another. Be angry and do not sin. Do not let the sun go down on your anger and give no opportunity to the devil. Let the thief no longer steal, but rather let him labor, doing honest work with his own hands so that he may have something to share with anyone in need. Let no corrupting talk come out of your mouths, but only such as is good for building up, as fits the occasion, that it may give grace to those who hear. And do not grieve the Holy Spirit of God, by whom you were sealed for the day of redemption. Let all bitterness and wrath and anger and clamor and slander be put away from you, along with all malice. Be kind to one another, tenderhearted, forgiving one another, as God in Christ forgave you. Paul goes on throughout the rest of chapters 5 and 6, and I'd encourage you to read it and study it, but this is how we put on the new selves. This is what we do. God has given us a new heart. What do we do? Practically, we live this out in our lives, as he's just explained. Let's go ahead and close our time in prayer. Father God, we are so thankful to have your word and more thankful, Lord, to know that we have Christ. So thankful to know that he has opened our eyes to see the gospel, to see that he has regenerated us, to know all the promises that are ours in Christ for hope of heaven, eternal life, fellowship with God. And even, Lord, the promises that he gives to complete us, that he who began a work in us will carry it to completion. Lord, we know that in our own strength that we would fail over and over, we would turn back to our old habits of life. We would never be able to overcome our sin, but by your grace and your mercy, you have supplied all that we need, all that pertains to life and godliness. God, fill us with the knowledge of Christ. May he be the one that we worship in every area of our lives. May we never forget him. May he be the thought in the front of our head every day from when we wake up to when we sleep. Thinking about who we are in Christ. Thinking about the work he's done in us. Thinking about how we can Live that out and display his glory in this earth. Lord, we know that you are faithful wherever your word is preached, that it won't return void. And I pray that these words this morning would be helpful and encouraging to this congregation. We know you're faithful to use your word. We ask that in the name of Christ this morning. Amen.